0: Welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 9, Greek Resurgence. Following the collapse of the Mycenaean world, Greece descended into relative cultural stagnation for almost three centuries, with the loss of their extensive trade network and writing. But in the late 10th century BC, the first embers of Greek resurgence began to smolder. Around this time, Euboea, The second largest Greek island behind Crete managed to reforge some links of an internal Greek trading network. This development led several Euboean settlements, such as the village of Lefkandi, to become wealthy, at least in comparison to their Greek contemporaries. Discovered in 1981, Lefkandi is heralded as a location of continuity following the collapse of the Mycenaean civilization and scholars still haven't been able to understand why it lasted while others did not. At Lefkandi, excavators have found the largest Dark Age building thus far, measuring 30 feet long and 150 feet wide. A burial beneath the floor of the main room held a bronze amphora from Cyprus containing the cremated remains of a man, presumably the Basileus. His ashes were wrapped in a linen cloth, The amphora was engraved with a hunting scene on the rim and was placed within a still larger bronze bowl. Beside it were found an iron sword, spearhead, and a whetstone, which was used for sharpening the tools. Next to the amphora lay a skeleton of a woman, presumably the Basileus' wife, and buried wearing bronze and gold jewelry from Cyprus and the Levant. Nearby was another burial containing the skeletons of four horses presumably as a sacrifice, with iron bits in their mouths. The fact that these people could afford to bury these type of commodities shows their growing wealth at this time. Also a terracotta figurine of a centaur was found in one of the burials. One of the famous centaurs of antiquity was Chiron, the tutor of many of the great heroes. There aren't many figurines from this period, and this is also one of the first images of myth in a period where we have no written sources. This is significant because the Lefkandi centaur, as a grave good, suggests the importance of myth in remembrance of the dead. Sometime shortly after this, though, the building was destroyed, and a burial mound was built over it. Scholars are unsure about the building's function, though. Was it the couple's house, or a deliberately designed massive tomb? In either case, the man who received this elaborate burial may have been given cult honors after his death as there are evidence of potholes around the perimeter that had wooden columns around it, foreshadowing the later Greek temple. Because of this, it is sometimes called the Herun, or Hero Shrine. This was definitely unlike all the other Dark Age sites. It was bigger than anything else up to that point, and says a lot about what's going on economically and socially at Lefkandi. because it would have taken a big monetary investment and community focus to create. Within the next century, rich members of the community were also cremated and buried close to the eastern end of the building. The presence of imported objects were found in more than 80 burials. Such wealthy and powerful people were probably still few in number throughout Greece at this time, but their existence at Lefkondi proves that marked social differentiation had either persisted or once again emerged in at least certain areas of the Greek world. Further material progress quickened in the ninth century BC, as the proto-geometric style developed to more complex forms in the geometric style, which can be conventionally divided into early, around 900 to 850 BC, middle, around 850 to 750 BC, and late, around 750 to 700 BC. In the early geometric period, Greek potters added new shapes and motifs to their repertoire, featuring sharp angles, zigzags, repeating patterns, and the classic Greek meander pattern, or Greek key design, all of which were displayed in clearly defined artistic bands across the top of the vase. But middle geometric potters gradually filled the entire surface of the vase. In addition, the vases became larger and more ambitious possibly meant to be show-off pieces for the artists, and costly trophies for buyers. We will come back to the late geometric period later in the episode. Other indications of material progress are that Greek craftsmen were now producing luxury items again, like fine jewelry and ivory carvings for domestic consumption. This development attests not only to the revival of craft skills and a market for them, but also to a renewed availability of raw materials from abroad, as a result of increasing trade with the Near East again. Both domestic and imported luxury items turn up with increasing frequency in the burials of the 9th century BC and onward. Houses were also built better at this time, reflecting the general rise in prosperity. But there were no major changes in building style and materials and the top families were still only a little more comfortably housed than the rest. The Greeks came back into contact with the Near East again, thanks to the Euboeans and the premier maritime traders of the Iron Age, the Phoenicians, who gladly filled the post-Mycenaean Aegean power vacuum and took the lead in Mediterranean trade and colonization. They were particularly interested in the high quality of local Euboean pottery, and the Phoenicians established a trade network with the Euboeans to facilitate its shipment to the Near Eastern markets in exchange for luxury items of gold and bronze. There are various references of the Phoenicians in Homer as skilled craftsmen and traders. They also invented the hardened prow, the anchor, celestial navigation, and the bireme. They transported throughout the Mediterranean embroidered garments Colored with a deep purple dye, a product of the murex shellfish, which was used for the robes of royalty. Just like the Greeks didn't call themselves Greek, these people didn't call themselves Phoenicians either. It was a term given to them by the Greeks, as phonikes means purple in ancient Greek. Also, like the Greeks, they were not a unified civilization or people, like the Egyptians, for instance. Two cities in particular, Sidon and Tyre ruled the waters with Sidon being the earlier power until Tyre eclipsed them later on. As they came to penetrate Aegean waters, they established trading outposts on Cyprus, Crete, Rhodes, Milos, Thassos, and Cathera, and went west to establish far-flung outposts on Sardinia, the Aeolian Islands, western Sicily, and southern Spain. But Carthage, a colony on the northern coast of Africa, to the west of Libya, would surpass the Phoenicians in power and influence and come to dominate the western Mediterranean. We will talk about Carthage in greater detail in upcoming episodes. As we discussed in the last episode, the Greeks came to inhabit the western portion of the Anatolian coastline during the Dark Ages. It was impossible for them to creep around the corner and inhabit the southern coastline, because the Lycians, Pamphylians, and Cilicians, from left to right, were already established there. They did, however, make their way to the island of Cyprus, and became the dominant element on the island. But in the 9th century BC, Phoenician influence on Cyprus came to dominate the island. It was a matter of geography, as Cyprus was just closer to the Phoenicians, and thus the island became tangled up in the geopolitical policies in the Near East. Regardless, the culture of the island reflected this mixture of Greek and Semitic races. Potters in Cyprus initiated the most elegant new pottery style of the 10th and 9th centuries BC, called the Cypro-Phoenician, black-on-red style, on small flasks and jugs that held precious contents, probably scented oil. Together with distinctly Greek Euboean ceramic wares, it was widely exported and is found in Levantine sites, including Tyre. The traditional theory is that Phoenician colonization westward was in reaction to the Greek resurgence as an effort to solidify their hold on the Mediterranean and to prevent the Greeks from infringing on their trade supremacy. This seems to be how it was later on, as the two will come to blows in upcoming episodes. But early on, the Phoenicians, along with the Cypriots, actually worked hand-in-hand with the Eubians to reconnect them to the trade networks in the East, as the search for vital commodities and luxury goods was greatly desired by the ruling Greek aristocracies. In doing so, at some point in the late 9th century BC, Evidence of an early Greek-Phoenician-Cypriot cooperation can be seen in the establishment of a trading post at Almina on the northern Syrian coast, just north of the ancient city of Ugarit, at the mouth of the Orontes River, and sitting across from the island of Cyprus. Whether Almina should be regarded as a Greek site, or a native Syrian site with Greek presence, has not been resolved. It was probably the latter. Regardless. It was here that the Dark Age Greeks took their first tentative steps towards reconnecting with the Near East and the greater world beyond, which allowed those luxury goods to be imported back to Lefkandi. Iron tools and weapons became better in quality, while renewed Mediterranean trade must have brought new supplies of copper and tin to make a wide range of elaborate bronze objects, such as tripod stands like those offered as prizes in the funeral game celebrated by Achilles for Patrocles in the Iliad. Copper from Cyprus, iron from Southeast Asia Minor, and luxury goods from Mesopotamia, Phoenicia, and Egypt flowed into Almena, where they were crafted into attractive ornaments and were transported westward to Greece and beyond. Other coastal regions of Greece, besides Euboea, were once again participants in the commercial and cultural exchanges of the eastern and central Mediterranean, while communities developed which were governed by an elite group of aristocrats, rather than by a single basileus or chieftain. More on that in future episodes. The archaeological record of many sites demonstrates that the economic recovery of Greece was in full effect by 800 B.C., The most game-changing import for the Greeks, though, was the return of writing, with the adoption of the Phoenician alphabetic script by these Euboean traders around 800 BC. The Phoenicians were the first civilization to make extensive use of an alphabet. Several scripts using a single symbol for each consonant emerged in Syro-Palestine during the 2nd millennium BC. These alphabets may have taken their initial inspiration from Egyptian hieroglyphics, which also includes symbols for single consonants. The main advantage of alphabetic scripts is the greatly reduced number of symbols requiring memorization, often only a few dozen. This aspect took writing out of the rarefied realm of highly trained court scribes and made it into a tool that anyone could use. One of the best-known early alphabetic scripts was that used by the Canaanite city of Ugarit in the 13th century BC. The script, rendered in cuneiform in the Ugaritic language, is still preserved on some 14,000 baked clay tablets. Unfortunately, neither the script nor the city survived the ravages of the Sea Peoples. However, the Phoenicians adopted the linear alphabet and developed it to run in the Semitic languages of Syro-Palestine. The Phoenician alphabet is believed to be the ancestor of almost all modern alphabets. According to legends recounted by Herodotus, the alphabet was first introduced to Greece by the Phoenicians, who came to Thebes with Cadmus of Tyre. According to the myth, his sister, Europa, was carried to Crete by Zeus, who was disguised as a bull. Their union created Minos and his brothers, as you'll recall in episode 5, and this brought about civilization in the West. In any event, Cadmus was sent by his parents to seek out and bring Europa back to Tyre, but instead he found the city of Thebes in Boeotia, the Acropolis of which was originally named the Cadmia, in his honor. Herodotus states, At first they used the same characters as all the other Phoenicians, but as time went on, and they changed their language, they also changed the shape of their letters. At that period, most of the Greeks in the neighborhood were Ionians. They were taught these letters by the Phoenicians and adopted them, with a few alterations, for their own use, continuing to refer to them as the Phoenician characters, as was only right, as the Phoenicians had introduced them. The Ionians also call paper skins, a survival from antiquity when paper was hard to get, and they did actually use goat and sheepskins to write on. Indeed. Even today, many foreign peoples use this material. Cadmus was clearly a mythical figure who lived well before the Trojan War. So the chronology in this doesn't mesh. While a Phoenician origin for the Greek alphabet is certain, the earliest Greek inscriptions match. Phoenician letter forms around 800 BC. And furthermore, the Phoenician alphabet itself wasn't developed until around 1050 BC. Or after the Bronze Age collapse. Linear B tablets have been found at Thebes, which has led some scholars to theorize that Cadmus may have brought Linear B to Greece, but this is just speculative and there is no evidence to corroborate this. However, in modern day Lebanon, Cadmus is still revered as the carrier of the letter to the world. Regardless of legend, the reasons that the Greeks finally decided to have a writing system at this time and not earlier, are still debated. Some scholars believe it was first developed for the purpose of writing down epic poetry, whereas others believe it was first used for commercial purposes, similar to the way Linear B was used, because the Greeks were involved in the international trade market again, and thus needed to keep track of goods. The writing that develops, though, is definitely unrelated to Linear B. The new letters came from the Phoenician alphabet, but the Greeks modified their alphabet to include vowels, enabling them to reproduce their spoken language precisely. The problem when trying to read ancient Near Eastern scripts is that there are no vowels, so we have to make our best approximation as to what the language actually sounded like. But this is not the case with Greek. The names for Phoenician letters actually mean something. Aleth is oxhead. Beth is house. Gimel is stick, Delet is door and so forth. When the Greeks created their alphabet, they changed the letter names into alpha, beta, gamma, delta, and so on, but they didn't adopt the dual meaning, however, only the sounds. The Greeks acknowledged their literacy debt to the Phoenicians in their own language, as the word for alphabet letters is phonicia, or Phoenician things. Greek initially took over all of the 22 letters of the Phoenician alphabet, Six of them were reassigned to denote vowel sounds. Yod becomes iota. Wa becomes upsilon. Alep becomes alpha. Ayin becomes omicron. E becomes epsilon. And het becomes eta. A doublet of wa was also borrowed as a consonant for digamma. Eventually a seventh vowel letter for the long O, omega, was introduced. Greek also introduced three new consonant letters for its aspirated plosive sounds and consonant clusters, phi, chi, and psi, and three of the original letters would eventually be dropped before the alphabet took its classical shape. An M-shaped letter, san, which had been in competition with sigma denoting the same S sound, a Q-shaped letter, copa, which was redundant with kappa for the K sound, and the digamma, whose sound value dropped out of the spoken language before or during the classical period. Writing spread quickly throughout the Greek-speaking world, with there being variations in letter form among each region. I won't get into the specifics as to what each alphabet lacked, how each letter was written differently, and so forth, but I'll give a brief overview of their types. The numerous alphabets are classified into four main types. The green type, used on Crete and some of the islands in the Cyclades, is the most archaic and closest to Phoenician. The red type, used in most parts of Thessaly, Boeotia, the Peloponnese, and Euboea, was transmitted to the west via the Euboeans and became the ancestor of the Latin alphabet. The light blue type was used in Athens and several Aegean islands. The dark blue type was used in Anatolia, Corinth, and Argos. The dark blue was adopted in Athens in the late 5th century BC and in most of the rest of the Greek world by the middle of the 4th century BC. That system is now taught as the standard 24-letter Greek alphabet, ordered from alpha to omega. It originally only had a single form of each letter, but developed the distinction between upper and lower cases in parallel with Latin during the modern era. Greek was originally written predominantly from right to left just like Phoenician, but scribes could freely alternate between directions. For a time, a writing style called Bustrophedon, which literally means ox-turning, after the manner of an ox plowing a field, was common, in which every other line of writing was alternated between right-to-left and left-to-right lines, with reversed letters. It was a common way of writing on stone. While it sounds altogether confusing... I suppose it's the most natural way, if you think about it like this. When you read a line from left to right, you have to bring your eyes back to the left to start over. But in boustrophedon, you are reading as you bring your eyes back left and are just going with a natural progression of reading. In any event, in the classical period, the left-to-right writing direction became the norm. Thanks to its simplicity, having only 20-something characters, compared to the 87 signs of the cumbersome Linear B syllabic system, and the fact that each letter represented a single spoken sound. It was fairly simple for Greeks to learn to read and write. The impact of literacy on Greek cultural development was enormous. It allowed them to share knowledge and ideas with one another, resulting in them making incredible leaps forward. Many of the achievements for which the Greeks are most famous for, history, drama, Philosophy, mathematics, science, medicine, and law could not have been possible without writing. Progress towards general literacy was slow, however. Only a few people in the 8th and much of the 7th century BC were literate. In fact, as was the case with most societies until very recently, only a small percentage of ancient Greeks would ever read or write, with those coming from the upper class which is why most of those aforementioned achievements were the result of the well-to-do of ancient Greece. Nonetheless, the reinvention of writing in Greece was a cultural game-changer, and one that cannot be overstated. If writing was developed initially to keep track of goods, there was an eventual departure though. The earliest known examples of written, connected Greek words that we have found come in the form of verses of poetry because it is easier for people to remember things in rhythm rather than prose. Very little writing remains from these early stages, though, only inscriptions found on pottery and stone. Most of the writing probably was lost because it was written on wood and other perishable materials. Eventually, writing would be recorded on papyrus, called byblos, in Greek. Because of this, the Phoenician city of Gabal, was called Biblos by the Greeks as it was the great exporter of papyrus to both ancient Egypt and Greece. It also gave the Christian Bible its name, from the Greek tabiblia, or the books. According to the Roman historians Livy and Strabo, at the beginning of the 8th century BC, a group of colonists from Halkis and Eretria in Euboea and from Caim in Aeolus established a colony at Pithecusi, on the island of Ischia in the Bay of Naples. Since Ischia is an active volcanic island to this day, and to get there from Euboea, they would have had to travel along the dangerous southern coastline of Greece and across the Mediterranean, through the treacherous Straits of Mycenae, where the mythical monsters Scylla and Charybdis lived, and continue north until they reached the Bay of Naples. Having passed a lot of great agricultural sites along the way, in Sicily and southern Italy, that would be colonized much later. This clearly demonstrates that it was solely for trading purposes, as a western version of Almina. The term in Greek is called Emporion. The plural is Emporia. It was not a colony, but a place which the traders of one nation had reserved to their business interests, within the territory of another nation. In any event, In addition to the Greeks, this emporion was a mixture of locals and Phoenicians as a cooperative venture-geared colony toward the extraction of precious metals, especially copper and iron, which were then shipped to the Etruscan kingdoms in central Italy in exchange for luxury items. Pithecusi was at the southern edge of the area dominated by the Etruscans, who were in their own right rich in metal, particularly silver. But also controlled the trade in tin and amber that came from Britain in the north. This meant that there now was a trade route stretching from the Near East to the Etruscans in the west via Almina and Pithacusai. This can be testified by many Egyptian scarabs and seals from northern Syria that have been unearthed at Pithacusai. The Eubians were trying to get richer, and the Phoenicians were interested in this expenditure because they desired the precious metals in Etruria needed to satisfy the Neo-Assyrian demands. Because of its fine harbor and the safety from raids afforded by the sea, the settlement of Pithecusi became successful through trade and grew in size to 5,000-10,000 to 10,000 people by 700 BC. It was at Pythacousae where we have found one of our earliest examples of ancient Greek writing that dates to around 750 BC. Inscribed from right to left, on the side of a type of drinking cup. The text is fragmented as some of the pottery shards are lost. Written in an early Eubian form of the Western Greek alphabet, it reads, I am Nestor's cup, good to drink from. Whoever drinks from this cup will straightway be seized with a desire for fair-crowned Aphrodite. It is one of the earliest references to myth, and appears to satirically allude to the passage in the Iliad. If you recall from a previous episode, Schliemann erroneously attributed a gold-drinking vessel found at Mycenae to belonging to Nestor. Modern scholars tend to agree that the text is meant as a humorous contrast between the richness of the legendary cup of Nestor and the simplicity of the clay-drinking cup. Some have hypothesized that it was the result of a drinking game. One person wrote the first line, then a second person was challenged to complement the poem with the second line, and so forth. In any event, this Pythikousai cup could have been some owner's play on Homer after the Iliad had been composed orally, or could be relaying a general myth of Nestor and his cup known at that time that was independent of the Homeric poems. If it was the former, then it would be the first literary allusion we have found in Greece. Another early inscription, dated to roughly the same time period, is the so-called Diplon inscription from Athens. The text is scratched on an anoki, or wine jug, and is named after the location where it was found near the ancient Diplon Gate in the Kerameikos of Athens. It is written in an archaic form of the Greek alphabet, with some letter shapes still resembling those of the original Phoenician alphabet. It too is written from right to left, and thirty-five of the forty-six characters can be made out. The text marks the vessel as a prize in a dancing competition. It is translated as, whoever of the dancers now dances most lightly, with the rest of the first line missing. And the second line is conjectured to have said something in the effect of, he shall get me as his prize, meaning the vessel. In any event, shortly thereafter, the Ubeans established a second colony, this one at Kumai, directly adjacent of Ischia, on the Italian mainland. It is reputed as the oldest Greek-only colony in the West. The colony was the entry point for the Greeks into Italy, and the influence of their new alphabet extended further. The Etruscans benefited from this new innovation as they adapted the Greek alphabet to their own language, in variants of old Italic spread throughout Italy during the 8th century BC. Our own Latin alphabet from the Romans descends via the Etruscan alphabet. The Eubian alphabet had a form of lambda that resembled a Latin L and a form of sigma that resembled a Latin S. Other elements foreshadowing the Latin forms include gamma shaped like a point at C, delta shaped like a point at D, and rho shaped like an R. Other variants of the Euboean alphabet appear on the Lemnos, Stella, and in various alphabets of Asia Minor. Lemnian is largely accepted as being closely related to Etruscan. After the Athenians conquered the island in the latter half of the 6th century BC, Lemnian was replaced by Attic Greek. While the Phrygian script is similar with early Greek, those of Lydian, Carrion, Lycian, and Sedetic all have characteristics that distinguish them from the earliest attested forms of the Greek alphabet, but later have alphabets that resemble Greek letters. In any event, all of these Anatolian alphabets fell out of use in the 4th century BC with the onset of the Hellenistic period. Linear scripts were not completely abandoned, however. Despite pressure from the Arcado-Cypriot Greek dialect and the Phoenician language on the island of Cyprus, the Edeos cypriot or true Cyprian, syllabary held out. This linear script was descended from the cypro syllabary, which has sometimes been called Linear C, as it is the third of the linear scripts, and a variant of Linear A. Some bilingual inscriptions, containing both Arcado-Cypriot Greek and Idio cypriot inscriptions, have been found. They attest to only a small vocabulary, and thus the language is still unknown it is conjectured by some linguists to be related to the Etruscan and Alemnian languages, and by others to be Semitic in origin. Most, however, believe it is a pre-Indo-European language. Regardless, Idio-Cypriot remained in use until the Hellenistic era. Development in artistic expression is another index of the bubbling creative energy during the late geometric period. In the 8th century BC, Vase painters began to depict living creatures once again. At first, they drew only stylized deer, goats, and birds on an abstract frieze across the vase. But then human figures reappear, drawn in geometric ways with triangular torsos and sharp angular limbs. Basically, they are stick-like silhouettes. The major decorative innovation, however, was the reappearance after an absence of around 400 years, of group scenes that told a kind of story. In particular, we have found many craters or amphorae, showing funerary scenes, complete with charioteers, soldiers all marching in procession, and women wailing in grief. One of the more famous vases is the Diplon Geometric Crater. A crater was a vessel used to mix water and wine. In this case, it was found near the Diplon Gate at the Caromychus Cemetery in Athens. A number of these vessels have been found there. They were used instead as a grave marker, a common practice in the geometric period. It sat on top of the grave for all to see, signaling the status of the deceased and echoing key funerary events in the scenes they displayed. They had openings on both sides, so when the libations were poured, it could fall to the soil and reach the body. It is around 3.5 feet tall and has over-stylized and simplified geometric forms, such as triangles, zigzags, and line shapes, representative of all geometric vase painting. At the top of the vase is a meander pattern that is often associated with ancient Greek art. It depicts a funeral scene, called prosthesis, where the deceased is laying sideways on a lifted bed, called a bier and visitors gather around to mourn that person. They are rendered in profile, raising the arms over their heads in a gesture of anguish, appearing to be tearing out their hair and singing laments. Ancient literature emphasizes the necessity of a proper burial, and neglecting this was seen as an insult to human dignity. Furthermore, a funeral presented a fine opportunity for a rich family to honor the deceased and display their family's wealth and pride. Painted Pottery gives us a glimpse of the series of rituals that took place. Women relatives of the deceased conducted the burial rites in three parts, the laying out of the body, the funeral procession to the cemetery, and finally the cremation or internment of the body. The body is laid out on a bier in the family's house after being ritually washed, anointed with oil, dressed, and garlanded. A later custom involved the provision of coins for the boat fare across the river Styx in the underworld. At this point, friends and relatives come to mourn, and they pay their respects, as depicted in the center of the vase. Other rituals included a funerary banquet and the purification of the deceased's home. The funeral procession to the cemetery, called ekphora, took place at dawn, and the body or ashes were then placed in the grave. This was sometimes attended by a ritual slaughtering, as skeleton of horses have been found in burials, like Lefkandi that we mentioned earlier. Libations of wine, wine mixed with water, wine with honey and water, and milk, were also offered to the dead. Tears were also considered libations. Physical objects also could be placed in the graves, though unlike the Mycenaeans, they placed few objects. Instead, they marked them with these grave markers. A monument as tall and as precisely decorated as these craters amphorae standing on the grave of the deceased sent a clear signal of family wealth, and such status was signaled also by the grandeur of the procession, the brilliance of the garments, and the abundance of food at the feasts. As we will come across down the road, in the archaic and classical periods, individual graves or family plots for the wealthy. Were marked by freestanding marble statues of humans, sphinxes, or lions, or of marble reliefs called stelae. This conspicuous consumption definitely ensured the deceased was not forgotten. Women made regular visits to graves with offerings, including small cakes and libations. A band below the funeral scene shows chariots with hitched horses and warriors carrying spears and large shields. This scene draws attention to the dead in his capacity as a warrior, accentuating a key role by which he and his social counterparts asserted their claim to virtue, service to the state, and aristocratic identity. It is also significant that he is portrayed with chariots, which harkens to a Homeric and heroic past. Overall, the emphasis in Greek funerary art is on the grief of the living who lost the deceased, Reflecting the Greek belief that the dead went on to a mysterious and unknowable underworld called Hades after its chief god, which contrasted with the Egyptian belief that the Kai, or spirit, enjoyed all of the same things after death as in life. There will be more on the underworld down the road. Anyway, craters were often associated with men because the mixing of water and wine in a crater took place at symposiums, where men gathered to drink eat, debate, plot, boast of accomplishments, and have poetry competitions. There also will be much more on this down the road. Another funerary geometric vase is an amphora, which has a long, narrow neck with two handles on each side. When they aren't used as funerary markers, they are associated with the Greek household, as they are used to store grain, water, and olive oil, as well as to carry water. Because of their association with domestic life, They were particularly associated with female graves. Furthermore, their decorations lack the military theme, a male-oriented decoration. Some scenes introduce the concept of narrative, and some carry specific allusions. A crater from Athens, made around 730 BC, depicts a huge fully manned oared ship. A male figure, still in dry land, holds the wrist of a female companion with his right hand starts to climb aboard. Some have proposed that this is Paris and Helen, while others have suggested it was a farewell scene. Identification is uncertain. Another crater, this one found at Pithacusai, depicts a shipwreck on a capsized boat, with sailors floating in a sea crowded with fish. One wretched fellow even has his head in the jaws of a shark. Such shipwrecks occur in Homer's narrative of the Odyssey and such incidents would not have been unknown to the seafaring Greek adventurers of the 8th century BC, who were already busy exploring the Mediterranean. As the 8th century BC progressed, the ongoing search for natural resources led to a general increase in the level of Mediterranean maritime trade. In combination with intensified local agricultural production, this ushered in a period of increasing wealth and prosperity, throughout the Greek mainland. After centuries of darkness, the Greek world has reawakened. Coinciding with increased contact with the Near East, the Greeks became more conscious of the cultural differences between themselves and non-Greeks. Although they would never be politically unified, they began to realize that, despite their quarrels, they all belonged to a single cultural group, sharing the same heritage, language, customs, and religion. Various steps would be put into place that helped to unite Greeks everywhere by means of religious sanctuaries and festivals, the most famous of which was the Olympic Games. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 10, Panhellenism. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review this show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes onto your phone every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you are checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Thanks everyone for your continued support, and I hope you are enjoying the podcast. I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist Michael Levy for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled, Song of Syrinx, from his album, The Ancient Greek Lyre." If you like what you heard and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientliar.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify.